this all happened, um, I just couldn't believe it was real. You know, and I was very depressed for a while. But um, I tried on my own to investigate through her friends. I talked to one of Brian's girlfriends. and It was to no avail. Nobody was willing to, if they discussed it, they, they didn't remember or, you know, so I appreciate you doing this. Um, you know, I saw some of your work product. It's in the file. I don't know how much, I know you've requested the documents at some point and you may have the same information that I have. I told you I have about 500 plus pages and I see your work. I, I see how much you put into this. I see how many people you talked to. I see your, you typed it all up. You did, you know, and, and that was important to me to be able to read all of it too, to know who you had spoken to. And I don't think I've ever seen a report where a family member has done that much actual documented work on a family member's case as you had. So I can see that. I see how much that you did. And it, it's got to be, you know, it, it shouldn't be that the family member's doing that. That's not your job and it shouldn't be that way. But I understand feeling, it. you know, it, maybe it made you feel like you had some sort of control over the situation to at least be doing that much. You doing that, how did that, did it help you in any way? Well, at the time, yes, it did. It, it, it did make me more depressed I think just you know talking with people but I wanted I wanted to talk about it I wanted to hear things about it I wanted you know her name to stay you know and not be forgotten and um so I had a, a pretty rough time of it during that period of time and, and of course now it's 30 some years and and um I always have said if they ever find out what happened that I would you know they better keep whoever was with her away from me <laughs> yeah I you know, you know I can see with this case and looking at it all um you know my focus is always on the on on my podcast why cases go cold I don't ever cover recent cases because I really don't want to get in the way of law enforcement and I think when you do that and you're covering the recent cases you can affect the investigation I don't I'm that's not responsible so the cases that I cover are very old cases decades old and I with a focus on why a case go cold went cold and in this case you know it's hard for law enforcement to say on paper whether we have a homicide here or whether it's misadventure of some kind. I have my own opinion about that. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit because I, I think there's a lot about that scene that doesn't make sense to me. Um, and so I, I don't, it doesn't, on its face, it doesn't make sense that she would end up how she ended up in a situation that was just, you know, accidental. Or we're missing some pieces to this story is what I feel. Um, and we have someone we know that picked her up that has never come forward. So that already doesn't look right. Something's not right. So for you, yeah. you, you have a particularly worse pain because you have no idea even what happened, never mind who did it. You don't know. Exactly. Um, it, it was very, very, very frustrating. And, and um, I did what I could. Family members would, you know, try to help me or <clears throat> tell me, you know, especially... Um, Keith, he would want me to remember her and, and Janine, did you hear anything? Are they working on it? <clears throat> um, he really wanted answers too and, and many of my family members did. 
but I did the best I could. So, but I, I wanted to say that she was my only child. Lisa was my only child. Um, her father lived then and, and still does in Pennsylvania. Um, she was 18 years old. She had just graduated from high school and I loved her dearly. I, you know, I never wanted anything like that to happen to her. Yeah. <clears throat> but she was very outgoing. Lisa was very outgoing and trusted, trusted other people. She didn't seem to know what this world was all about and how you have to be careful, you know, yeah. of what, what you're doing. But she had a good sense of humor. She was very loving and cared about others. She, you know, would do things for her little, um, my sister's grandchildren and stuff. She would do things with them. And, and she was very outgoing and sweet. And, um, and many people said to me, I can't believe anybody could do anything like that to her, you know, because she was so loving and, and, um, so anyway, but she, when she graduated high school, she became an adult or so she, she was adult. <laughs> she wanted to do what, whatever and whenever she wanted to. And so I had a struggle with her, um, I told her I was just looking out for her because I loved her and did not want anything to happen to her. And um, I reminded her to lock her doors on her car because it, there was someone that she, and I think Jeff told you too, that um, was following her. And she told me about it. She was concerned about it. I said, make sure your doors are locked and don't stop for anyone. <clears throat> Um, so let me jump in there. I haven't, I've tried to track down Jeff and I'm, he's one of the people I'm still trying to track down. He's got one of those common names. It's a little bit more difficult. So I've bothered quite a few Jeffs right now, <laughs> but oh. we're, I'm going to keep doing it because I want his, that part of the story is important. Um, so she had on the day before, uh, that Friday lunch with Jeff and is what the report says. And then, and that interview, he mentioned that there was some, guy in a truck that had been following her around and trying to get her to pull over and she hadn't were there any more details about that story that she told you or that he he told you that she said anything other than just a guy that was following her um that was trying to get her to pull over um no uh, i didn't get any more information i i scolded her and told her to make sure she had a little blue chevy car and it had four doors and you know i told her to please make sure you lock your doors because she'd be going to Winn-Dixie to work um, and come home at night sometimes by herself mm -hmm. and all. And, uh, but no, I never heard any more. And Jeff, I think, came over to visit after she was gone. And um, he told me that she told him that also. So... You know, I knew that if she told him and, and also told me that somebody was following her. Did you get the impression she was afraid? That he had made her afraid? Or it was just sort of strange to her? I think maybe a little of both. Because um, for her to tell me, I think um, because, <laughs> because she was an only child, I was very strict on her about... Mm -hmm. You know where she could go and she wanted to go to a party one night and I thought no way are you going 
and uh, she wasn't very happy about it, but she stayed home. And uh, but anyway, um, I think she was a little scared, and I think I had recently told her that um, she needs to tell somebody where she's at, where she's going. You know, um, I wanted to keep communication with her so that if anything like that happened again, you know, I I could come and get her or something or whatever. But um, um, no, I, I think she was a little scared. Lisa Beckel's mother, Janine Kearney, well, back then, Janine Beckel, got a call early that Saturday morning around 9 or 9.15 a.m. This seems to be the first indication that something might be wrong. Lisa had stayed away from home all night before, but this was something different. Later, Lisa's mother would tell a reporter for the Bradenton Herald that the phone rang and a lady on the other end said, Is this Lisa? Once her mom identified herself as Lisa's mother, she was told that Lisa's wallet had been found in a ditch. So Mrs. Beckel arranged to meet the woman at a restaurant called The Clock in Palmetto to retrieve it. It was there that she learned a man named Joe Hendricks, known by locals as Indian Joe, was the one who found it. Now I'm going to use the moniker Indian Joe when I refer to him because despite it not being the correct terminology today, not a single person that I spoke with referred to him by any other name. That appears to be what everyone called him. And because my podcasts are always directed specifically at people that might have information, anyone listening who would have information would know him by Indian Joe. Talk to me about that morning when you got a call um, about the wallet. Okay. Um, well, I, I went to meet with them. I, I didn't want them to come here um, because I, I didn't even know who Indian Joe was. I may have vaguely maybe heard his name somewhere, but um, so anyhow, I set it up that I would leave them at a clock restaurant and they would bring their wallet. And he made a point to tell me right up front that there was no money in there, in the wallet. Mm -hmm. And uh, they opened it to look and see if they could find an ID, of somebody's name or a picture or something. And of course, her driver's license, I think, were in there. I'm sure they were. And um, so anyhow, um, I went down there and I was scared because I didn't know what kind of person he was or who he really was. But anyhow, he talked nice to me, gave me the wallet, um, and I again said, I know my daughter wouldn't have gone out this weekend without any money. Because she worked for her money. Mm -hmm. uh, she bought her own car. Um, just, you know, just a responsible kid. When you, when you met him at the clock, was he alone or with the girlfriend? You know, um, I can't decipher which way it was. I, I'm not sure if she was with him because I was like devastated. I didn't, you know, I went down there to get that wallet thinking that maybe that'll give me some clues or something. And I even gave it to the sheriff's department to take fingerprints. Mm -hmm. And that didn't apparently bring anything out or no. been able to get the fingerprints or something. I don't know. But, um, I, I can't say, I, I can't say if there was someone sitting at a table in the back of the restaurant there, 
I can see myself going in there, and I asked the lady if she could point out Indian Joe to me. And so that's where she directed me. And then I went back and sat down, and, and um, I don't know if that's the time when Indian Joe told me that she somebody was crying. He heard somebody crying, and I think that might have been the time. It, it may have been Lisa crying out. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you about that. So he he said that that night did he know have a time frame on it? What or anything other specific other than he heard? Did could he say it was a female, um, or anything? Yeah. Okay, I think I think he did, um, but he didn't um, he didn't say any time or anything. But at night, it was at night he heard they heard. I think the girlfriend maybe also heard um, someone. Uh, a girl crying out. They, they, um, Ron told me also that, that her mom had said that they found a wallet out on Snead Island. And then, um, when I, I was talking to her, to, to Lisa's mom, she said, um, yeah, Indian Joe had found it mm -hmm. and she didn't know anything about him. And I said, well, he's, he's harmless. He's, he's actually a good guy. You know, mm -hmm. I, you know, I knew him and, um, my mom knew him and, you know, he was frequent out and, and he stayed on a houseboat on our property at one time. So, um, you know, we knew him mm -hmm. and he was living with, um, with, um, Barbara out there and I knew they would camp out and stuff, but her parents had a house on Snead Island too. He, he was, you know, he would just walk and stuff and he found it in the ditch, I guess, along the side of the road or whatever. When I asked around to locals, I was told that Indian Joe was an older man. He was homeless or unhoused, as is the preferred terminology today. Sometimes he stayed in a camp out near Emerson Point. He was known to walk the area, and so this seems a reasonable explanation for why he was out on Sneed Island early that morning, and why he might see a wallet lying on the side of the road in a ditch in the course of his daily routine. By every single account of those who had interacted with him, he was a nice man and a well-known fixture in the area. Now, of the wallet itself, Janine Beckel told the Bradenton Herald reporter, like she told me, quote, there was absolutely no money in it. I found that unusual for her to go away on a Friday night without a penny. She told the newspaper that she went home then and she called her sister. The police report notes that after receiving the wallet, she had checked certain areas for Lisa, as well as the area of her boyfriend's residence, and then she filed a missing persons report for her daughter. The missing persons report that Mrs. Beckoff called in is noted as having been taken at 1.20 p.m., and the information was entered into NCIC at 1.30. That helps a little bit with our timeline, so we know what was happening next. Here's another quote from Mrs. Beckel to the Bradenton Herald. A close friend had seen Lisa on Friday night. Lisa phoned her friend and told her she was meeting a man for a date that night at Bradenton Riverfront Park. The friend thought the man's name was Keith. The friend told police Lisa met the man at a traffic stop. This friend is Susan, and you heard a bit from her in the last episode about her timeline that day, leading up to finding Lisa's car that Saturday. She told police that she believed Lisa had said this unknown man that she was meeting was named Keith and that he had a truck. Quote, he's going to get a bottle and we're going to get fucked up. 
That's what she remembered Lisa saying to her, and that's what police jotted down in their handwritten notes. And the he in question is someone that she ran into at a stoplight, apparently, in Bradenton, just hours before speaking to her friend. In the handwritten notes of the 7.10 p.m. conversation, it says, quote, did not say anything about date, did mention truck. I do go back to the handwritten notes because those are the notes taken at the exact time when police spoke to these witnesses, which would have been the closest in time to when the events occurred. And from this note, it's hard to say whether did not say anything about date in that last conversation meant that Lisa didn't say anything about this meetup being an actual date, per se, or whether Susan had initially told police when she was questioned about that last conversation that Lisa didn't mention meeting this person at all. Susan's recollection, which you heard in the last episode, suggests that meeting this individual was mentioned in both of Lisa's last conversations with her. Here's more from Susan about her memory of the timeline that Saturday. I received a phone call from my old manager, um, Ron Kemper, and he was the manager at Palmetto, and he said, hey, um, do you know where Lisa might be? And then he told me that her mom had contacted um, the store there looking for her. And I told him, I said, oh, my God. And I, and I said she actually had a blind date, and she was supposed to meet that guy at the park. So um, my manager at the store I was at, because I was in Oniku by then, he told me I could go ahead and leave. So I left work, and I drove to Rossi Park, and her car was sitting there. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I walked um, and just walked around the front of it and stuff and didn't touch it or anything. And I drove over to the dumpsters by the railroad track, and I even looked in there. Um, just, you know, just, you know, thoughts run through your mind. Yeah. And so I looked through there, and then um, I got my car, and I headed to um, her mom's house, which is out here in Ellington. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went, and her um, her mom was leaving with her sister, and they were heading, um, they were going out to Sneed Island um, because her, her nephews were out there, you know, at the island. And she said, you, you want to go with us? And I said, yeah, and I'll show you where her car is. And so we went across the bridge, and I showed her a car, and I said, told her, I said, don't touch it because there might be fingerprints or something else on that car. Mm-hmm. So don't don't touch it. And so, um, and she was telling me how, of course, oh, it's not 48 hours, you, you know, they're not going to do nothing. So um, we went ahead and went out to the island, and um, the twins were out there, um, and they, they were um, going out in the woods and stuff and looking, you know, down there where they found some stuff. So um, we went ahead and left, and she took me back to my car. And then I went home. And by the time I got home, my um, mom called and said the sheriff's department had come by our bait shop out there on Sneed Island and said um, they wanted Mark and myself to go out to the island. And so I was like, okay. So... um, 
we headed out that way, but first we stopped by the bait shop. And she said, yeah, um, they came by and they want you to come out that way. So we went out there and um, her mom was out there and she said that the boys had found a rope or something going down to the water. And that um, I guess her clothes were folded up on the beach. And I saw one of the earrings too, because they had us go over to the, um, to the trunk of the car, the police car, and he pulled out a bag and it had her clothes in it and stuff and um, identify them. But um, they said there was a rope that was leading down to the water, um, but one of her earrings was twisted and mangled. It was mangled? And, Visibly yeah. mangled? Yeah, it was twisted um, <laughs> from what, um, I mean, what I could see. Right. Unless it, you know, I don't right. know if it, when it happened, but, and, um, then you could hear the dogs in the background and motorboats going and, um, then it got so bad and they said we we're wrapping up because it was getting dark and we left and then they called me the next morning and told me that her body popped up. Sometime between 10 a.m. and noon, before that missing persons report was filed, Another person spotted a white pickup truck on Sneed Island, parked about 100 yards from the point on the north side of the road. It was an older model white pickup, and the witness thought that it was about a 10-year-old pickup, so that would have made it somewhere around a 79 or 80 model at the time. This witness specifically thought it was a Ford pickup truck, and he said the white male in his 30s near that truck had a full goatee. I left work. It was probably about um, it was probably about twelve when I left work, um, and then headed that way. And I want to say we got out to Sea Island. It was by the time we got out to Sea Island, it was around two or, or two or three, because it was it was afternoon. And they had already found the clothing by then. <clears throat> no, they hadn't found it yet. No. Okay. But, um, but it, when we when we got out there, the boys were still. Um, like back in the woods searching. And then um, we, you know, like I said, she took me back to my car and then went back out there. And I guess that's when they had found, because we'd already, they'd already taken me back to my car when they found all the stuff that they found out there. In an excerpt from a letter that she would later write to Unsolved Mysteries the following year, here is how Lisa's mother remembered that day. On Saturday morning, June 16th, 1990, I received a phone call from a lady who said that her boyfriend had found Lisa's wallet in a ditch on Sneed Island, Palmetto, Florida. There was no money in Lisa's wallet, which was very unusual for Lisa. After retrieving the wallet, I called the Manatee County Sheriff's Department and reported Lisa missing. Around 2.30 that afternoon, I decided to look for the person who found Lisa's wallet who lives on Sneed Island, and also to see if I might locate Lisa. Family members joined me in this search. During the attempt to locate the party who found her wallet, my nephew accidentally came upon Lisa's clothing floating in the water. We called the sheriff's department to report that we had found her clothes and also to tell them that Lisa's car had been located at Riverfront Park in Bradenton. So that indicates that it was not until around 2.30 that afternoon that family began looking for Indian Joe and searching the island for Lisa. In his statement to police, Lisa's cousin, Keith Smith, told police the following. 
and I'll quote it directly from the report. Keith Smith stated that he responded to an area on Emerson Point to locate one Indian Joe. Smith stated that Indian Joe had found a wallet belonging to the victim and that he was attempting to locate Indian Joe for further information and help in locating the victim. Smith stated he walked back to the water and found victim's clothing and earring. He removed the clothing and called MSO, which is Manatee County Sheriff's Office. Now, Indian Joe would not be taken to the scene by police to show them where he found the wallet until June 18th on Monday, the day after Lisa's body was found, according to Detective Jones's report. So Indian Joe was never on Sneed Island helping them look on that Saturday. And it's important to understand that no one in the family would have any way of knowing where that wallet was found by Indian Joe until that Monday. And do you remember Indian Joe was not out there at the time? He was not available. Um, he, he didn't meet up with family to say, here's where we found the wallet. Oh, I don't, I don't know when that all happened. So you, um, but you went by you, with the time that you were down there, you did not see him down there. No, 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 no. Okay. Because it sounds like around the time you got there, between two and three, is around the time that um, Keith Smith, one of the cousins, said yeah. he got down there. He worked until two, he said, then he got down there around three. So, and then by the by five, they're already calling the police. So the, the finding of those things happened fairly quickly. I was confused by how they knew to look in that specific location because of the length of that road and Keith's telling police that he started at the tip and... I'm I'm sort of confused at what led him into that spot because from what I've been told by locals it was not it was not a spot it says in the report you can't see it from the road it was not a spot that was you know like the point where people hung out so I'm do you have any clarification on what led them to that spot specifically well there were trails that would lead you back to the water back there mm -hmm. you know and it, and it would take you out even to to Tampa Bay area you know Terracia mm -hmm. um and, you know, which is leads into Tampa Bay. But there were trails that you could go back there and people would go camp out there on those beaches and they would go fishing and stuff. Mm -hmm. So all you would have to do is if you were if you were one of those avid fishermen or, you know, you could see where people were walking back there because there's a little. So you're thinking they just started taking the trails then and looking around. Right. Did, did and when, when I talked to Indian Joe, um, he he came by, you know, after, you know, a few days after. Mm -hmm. And he said that um, he heard some, and, and he said that hindsight was, you know, once again, um, he heard a girl screaming. Oh. And, but they, they had heard, you know, things before. And, oh. you know, just kind of blew it off. But um, he said he started to go just because of, of the sound uh, that the scream was. But he didn't, and then he was saying that he wished he would have because, you know, he might have been able to do something. But did he feel like that the area he heard the screaming from was in the direction of where her where that clothing was found? Uh, um, yes, because he 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 said that he was a little further down, I guess closer to the tip, uh -huh. and um, and she was um, more towards you know coming back. Right, about like halfway down that road, it seems like, yeah. is where she was. Keith told police that he worked that day from 8.30 in the morning until around 2 p.m. and arrived on Sneed Island to search around 3 p.m. 
Police did not interview his twin brother, Kevin, who was also out there that day, nor did they record any interview notes with their mother, who was also out there. This is unfortunate because the family was known to own a white older model truck for their landscaping service, and had they been out there on the island that day, any earlier than Keith began his search at 2.30, or if police had asked them if it was one of them who'd been out there that morning around 10 to noon sometime where the white truck sighting occurred, we might have a little more clarity today. Unfortunately, that wasn't done. I did reach out to Kevin by messenger on Facebook to ask, but he did not respond. Kevin's twin brother, Keith, is the person who found his cousin Lisa's clothing, and he is now deceased, so I am not able to get clarity on his timeline that day either. So here's what Keith told police which they summarized in a short note in the police report. He told police he began his search in the area around the tip of Emerson Point and then went in and found Lisa's clothing about 250 feet north of the road by the bank of a canal. The problem we have here is that the area where the clothing was found is more than a mile from Emerson Point, which is the tip of that island. There's nothing in the report that describes how the search commenced or whether they searched both sides of the road that leads out to Emerson Point, since obviously they had no idea where to even begin. They had no idea where the wallet was found. All they knew that it was found somewhere on Sneed Island, which would have been essentially a couple miles long. The road itself from the entrance of Emerson Point Preserve is about a mile and a half long and about a mile from the point to where the wallet would be found. The distance from today's entrance to Emerson Point Preserve down the road to get off Sneed Island is about another mile. And all of that, back then, in 1990, was pretty out of the way. One long stretch of a couple miles, there are canals and footpaths along both sides of that road, but it seems that if you started your search at the tip of Emerson Point and searched both sides of the road, it would take an extended period of time to get a mile up that road. Here's how Lisa's mother described what she was told back then about the cousin's search to a Bradenton Herald reporter in a May 1992 article, some two years later. They walked down along the canal on Sneed Island. As they were walking back, my nephew happened to glance down. Her clothes were floating in the water, and her shoes were sitting on the bank. He grabbed her clothes and shoes and came crying out of the woods. My sister said to drop them, because they could contain evidence. At this point, the article says, the sister called Mrs. Beckel and had someone drive her to Sneed Island. So you guys are basically all down there. You know there was a wallet found on Sneed Island, and that's all you know. You don't you don't know where sort of to look. You're just all sort of looking. Who, who in the family was searching Emerson Point at that point besides you and Susie yeah. went down there and... Yeah, um... Susie was there with them at one point, I'm pretty sure. Yes. My sister, Judy Smith, and my nephew, Keith Smith. And by the way, there's two, they're twins, Keith and Kevin Smith. And it was only Keith. It wasn't Kevin, I don't think, had any involvement in it at all. Well, Susie said she saw both of them down there. She What she remembered is getting down there and... One of them coming out of of where the bushes were before uh, Keith. She thought it was Kevin because then then Keith 
came out. But I don't think she saw him emerge with the clothing. But she was sometime just after that shown the The police were called. And then the police are who showed her the clothing. And it was at that point that she identified them. It wouldn't have been until that point that anyone would have known what she was wearing, I guess. Because the only two people that saw her the night before when she was changed would have been Susie and then Willie uh, Oliver who saw her get into you know, the car. So she said that's her recollection of that. I get the, I want, I don't, first of all, I don't want you to think that I'm accusing Keith of anything because I'm asking about these clothing. I'm asking about these clothing because number one, the police didn't take enough notes about what Keith told them where, where and how he found them. Number one. And number two, so all I have are literally newspaper accounts and that's not appropriate. Um, and number two, this crime, the scene doesn't make sense where the clothes are. It doesn't make sense if this was a, a, a consensual encounter. And not only that, even if it wasn't, the clothing was not in the same places where the condom and the and, and the earring and everything were found up on the, you know, there was a slope apparently that went down to the water, but the flat land up there underneath the trees is where the other things were found. So and the only way that the clothing makes sense floating on the water or down by the water is if she took the, those clothing the, those clothes off herself and walked into the water of her own volition, or no. someone tossed them down there. They were attached to um, like things that were growing on the side of the bank. They like sticks and stuff. They were hanging from that. Um, and her shoes were up on the the flat ground above the water. Um, but. Um, laying, laying like someone just, do you remember exactly how he said he found them? Like, were they, were the two shoes, you know, when you take off your shoes and you set them next to each other, were they like that or were they, you know, just randomly tossed on their sides or do you know? No, that, they were set up there side by side. They were like that, her shoes, or so I was told. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and it says... Ahead. No, the newspaper had said that he had seen them floating in the water. So the so you're saying the clothes were like tossed in the water and sort of had caught on trees and things like that. Um, the clothes were caught on the trees. She had a bra stretched across her. When I saw a picture in the sheriff's pictures, um, mm-hmm. the bra her body had swollen up, of course, and. The bra was stretched across her. I don't know if it was the top of her or the back of her. The only two people that had seen Lisa after she changed that night into the clothing that would later be found, aside from the mysterious person who picked her up from Riverfront Park, were her friend Susan and Mr. Oliver, the man who saw her get into that pickup. No one at the scene that day until Susan arrived would have been able to verify that was the clothing that Lisa was wearing. Um, let me ask you about this. Do you remember the first time someone asked you about what Lisa was wearing when you saw her? When I was asked that, was out there on the island. Okay, so before you got out there at what you're saying, two thirty, three o'clock, nobody had asked you what she was wearing. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I thought that was the case. I, that's why I was wondering why, how they knew um, when the cousin... See, the other thing that the newspaper report says is that when the clothes were found, Lisa's mom wasn't even out there. They had to call her and have someone drive her out there. When you got there, was Lisa's mom there? 
Um, oh gosh. I don't even, I don't even remember because we were, we stayed out there until, um, all they wanted us to do was go see the clothes. And I don't remember if I, I don't recall because I know I would have been like very, very. But you, but you said she, you went by her house and she told you, um, now that I'm thinking back to what you said, that she told you to, um, she asked if you wanted to go with them. So did you ride with them or did that you go? Was in the, that was in the morning. That was or, or earlier in the okay. day. Okay. When I, when I went to her house and, and, um, she said that the boys were out there and that they were going to go out there. And she said, do you want to ride with us? And I said, yeah, and I can show you like we're a car. And then, um. So I hopped in and we went across the bridge and I showed her where our car was. And um, and what time of day is this about? That that was like um, two or three, something of that nature, because we didn't um, we got out to the island and um, it would have to have been probably closer to three because when we got to the island, that's um, the boys were already out there. They were looking, but the clothes had not been found yet. No. Okay. Um, because when they took me back to my car, um, they hadn't, they hadn't been found yet. And it was when we went back, um, and we weren't told, I, I know I didn't see her mom because her mom would have already known about the, the rope and stuff because she told me that later about the rope and all being down there. Detective Jones arrived at 5.33 p.m. on Sneed Island. Deputy David Hogden was dispatched to the scene at 5.33, and he arrived at 6.18. Deputy Hogden's typed report was the most concise report as to the findings at the scene on that Saturday. At the above time on June 16, 1990, I was contacted by dispatch and asked to respond to Emerson Point Road, area of Sneed Island, regarding what had initially been reported as a missing person. At approximately 6.18 p.m., I arrived at the scene, a heavily wooded area of Emerson Point Road, located on an unpaved portion. Detective Jones related to me that persons searching the area for signs of the missing girl had found a torn white top, torn black skirt, and white shoes near the water's edge, north of the roadway. They had subsequently been identified as belonging to the missing girl. The people who had found the clothing had moved it from where they found it and laid it on the ground approximately 30 feet north of the roadway, where it was still located on my arrival. Detective Jones and Lieutenant McBride then showed me what was believed to be the crime scene area. As there was no ready point of reference to fix its exact location, it was determined that a set telephone pole on the south side of the roadway just west of where we entered the woods, would serve as a marker. It was subsequently marked with orange paint as TP1, the marking being done on June 17th. The area subsequently determined to be the crime scene was located 86 paces, approximately 258 feet, northeast of the pole. On my arrival at the scene, I noticed a large amount of debris in the area indicating that it is regularly visited by people. The area is not visible from the roadway due to a heavy concentration of Australian pines. 
It is located at the waterline and approximately four feet above it, up a small slope. It was noted that although there was much debris in the area, there were no signs of a disturbance or fight in the area. No scuffing of the dirt or pine needles, no broken limbs on trees or bushes, and no sign that any of the trash in the area, much of which had obviously been there for some time, had been disturbed or overturned. In addition, there were no signs of anything having been dragged down the sandy slope to the water's edge. In the immediate area were a number of items which we felt were possibly involved in the investigation. They included, but were not limited to, a black plastic hoop earring which had been identified as belonging to the girl, an almost full pack of regular Marlboro cigarettes, flip-top box, a single cigarette butt believed to be a Marlboro light, the brand smoked by the missing girl, several lengths of rope, quarter-inch, clothesline type, some of which had knots in them, and which were strewn in various areas of the scene. A used condom and an open condom package. I thoroughly photographed the area, beginning from the roadway and moving through the woods to the scene. Once at the scene, I photographed the area from all possible angles, then took photographs of specific items in the area of the scene. After doing that, with the help from Detective Jones and Deputy Johnson, I made a rough sketch of the area. We designated two trees south of the scene, east and west, as numbers one and two, and used them as our baseline from which to make measurements to pertinent items within the scene. We subsequently designated four trees within the scene as trees three through six. All the trees were subsequently marked with their numbers in orange paint. We then made measurements to all items deemed to possibly be part of the scene using various of the six trees as points to measure from. Following the taking of these measurements and making several rough sketches, I made 13 evidence collections from the scene. I had earlier photographed and collected the girl's clothing at its location by the roadway. During the time we measured and sketched the area, deputies Baranowski and Ogline from the canine section searched the area with their dogs with negative results. In addition to the immediate area around the scene, they searched the wooded area across the small lagoon where the scene was located, but found nothing. At approximately 8.38 p.m., I cleared the scene and went to Riverfront Park in Bradenton, where the victim's car had been located. Detective Jones requested that I attempt to process the vehicle for fingerprints or any other information that might be helpful. I located the vehicle at approximately 8.55 p.m. and waited approximately 10 minutes for the missing girl's mother to arrive during which time I took several pictures of the vehicle, a light blue 1982 Chevy Chevette. As I prepared to dust the car, the girl's mother, Mrs. Janine Beckel, arrived with Mr. Daniel Kearney. They had the keys to the vehicle, which was locked. 
I dusted the left half of the roof, the driver's door, and the left rear door, but only raised one print located on the left rear window, which I lifted. During the time I was processing the vehicle, I was approached by a black male who identified himself as Willie Oliver. He asked if anything happened to the girl driving the car. Under questioning, Oliver stated that he had seen a blonde, white female, wearing a white top and black skirt, drive up in the car during the morning hours of June 15, 1990. He said she had left the car and sat for some time on a bench, overlooking the river. He stated that just as she started back to her car, a white male drove up in a white pickup truck and the girl went to meet him. Oliver said he heard the man apologize for being late. The girl got in the truck and they left. He said the girl appeared to be happy to see the man. He described the man as approximately 28 to 32 years of age, with sandy, medium-length hair and a mustache. He could not see what the man was wearing. He said the truck was a late model, full size, with no topper, and no damage or unusual paint that he saw. He stated that the one distinguishing feature of the vehicle was that it had very loud mufflers, like glass packs. He said that he never saw the girl again, but noticed that the car stayed there. Mrs. Beckel, who had overheard part of this conversation, stated that the description sounded like the man her daughter had been dating, whose name was Brian. Now, in the vehicle, the detective reported were some, quote, overnight items, such as a change of panties and cosmetic items. Nothing suspicious was found in or about her vehicle. You didn't know what time he said he saw Lisa at Riverside Park, right? There, it, that's another thing that's glaringly missing from this report, is them noting what time he said he saw, or even asking what time he saw Lisa get into that truck. I think he came up to us and yes. said, um, do you know that girl? And I said, yes, I do. That's my daughter. I said, that's my daughter's car. I said, did, did you see her? You did tell me how much time he watched her, like 45 minutes or something. And he said, well, this guy pulled up in a white pickup truck and um, she went up to him and he was late getting there. And um, then she went around the car. They were talking through the window and then she went around the car and got in that truck. And they left, they pulled out. But he said he... You know, he um, I, he obviously got a good look at the guy. Right. And, uh, yeah. And he and he gave the the police the uh, the correct description of her clothing. There's no doubt that he saw Lisa because he knew what she was wearing, and she, he saw her get out of her car. So I find him credible, um, as far as that goes. I do too, but the the uh, investigator acted like he. You know, I wanted him. What happened was I worked downtown um, near the courthouse. I worked down there and uh, for a period of time in a law office. And um, one day I was at lunch and I was coming back from lunch and this uh, Willie Oliver was standing 
there was a bus stop there. He was waiting for a bus. So I got really, really excited when I saw him again. And I thought, I'm taking you to the sheriff's department. So I asked him, I said, Willie, will you please go with me to the sheriff's department and tell them what you saw? I said, I, I need you to make your report for them. And so I took him to the sheriff's department. And yeah, I was right by the courthouse and stuff. And um, so I walked him over there. And I think I told somebody to tell my boss that I would be back, but that I found, um, you know, the guy that was a witness to her getting in that truck. And so I took, a, took him there and they were going to go ahead and work with him, talk with him. And I don't know if they did it that day. I think they had to have time probably to get the person in that does the photos or whatever. It sounds like what you're saying is they took his initial report that night when, when he came forward and said, are, are you, what happened to the girl? Cause he had seen, you know, he came forward right away when you were all standing there at the car, he knew, kind of put it together that something had happened. So he gives his initial report and then police don't talk to him again until you find him at this point. That's correct. And they didn't, they said, the detective said, I don't, I don't trust people like that. And <sighs> Basically, that's what he was telling me, and he wasn't going to go look for him. I wanted to look for him, that was fine, but he wasn't going to go look for him. So, that's, I took him, I thought, this is my chance, and I'm going to do it, you know. So I did, and I took him there, and at least I got that out of him, but only because I took him, took the guy there. Mm-hmm. Her mom told me that they dismissed him because he was homeless and lived under under a bridge and that he was an incredible witness you know i put out the composite drawing today that they never released and that composite is based on the information that that man gave i'm going to tell you this about that that man he has been homeless for a long time that doesn't mean he doesn't know he gave clearly exactly. he clearly gave a description of her clothes that was right he knew he had seen her he backed up everything you said there were some things that were said and and things that were were um, that were done that um, shocked me and um, her mom had told me you know some things that they had said and stuff Lisa you know she was 18 she she was um, she was a good kid she wasn't she wasn't you know um, we had fun together you know we went to Disney, we, you know, I mean, we, we hung out and, you know, state fair, all, all kinds of things, you know, we, um, she come over, we played Pictionary and, you know, just a group of us and stuff. And she was a lot of fun to hang around. Um, she, um, I, I thought that, um, some of the handling, you know, um, they, the police well, they, they wanted me to go in and be hypnotized because they were trying to, um, and they did that twice to me, you know, just trying to, to get things. And then um, when we moved and we bought our house in Palmetto, the first phone call that came was from that detective. And it was almost like um, there was a car that would sit across. Um, we lived off 14th Street over there. And there would be undercover 
like detectives sitting there like we had something to do with it and when um huh. <laughs> when i that's just the way they made me feel and whenever you know i was talking to her um she told me that that detective was kind of like, oh, well, she was just a wild child. Um, and that's just another one gone. And oh. I was like, what? Oh, God. But I just didn't appreciate, you know, first off, making for somebody in that position to be making comments like that about her. Yeah, that's and then absolutely be, not appropriate. Absolutely to, not appropriate. To be assuming that um, Mark and I would have something to do with something like that, you know, and when she showed up and we tried to get her to go, um, and like I said, if I could have, you know, um, I would have, but she... You're not, I can sense it's upsetting to you. It's upsetting, upsetting me hearing it. And um, you're not the only one. I had, I can't tell you how many of her friends said almost the exact same thing to me. Um, I think there is this sort of, um, this tide of survivor's guilt among you guys. And so, you know, I, I, I can hear it. I can, from all of you, I can see, I can see it. And it, it upsets me that the detectives weren't handling this the way they should have. And I want to be clear about something also. So a lot of her friends did tell me Lisa had multiple sexual partners she was wild and free but everyone talked to me about her exactly like you are nobody had a, te a not a bad word to say about her everyone really liked her had fun with her she didn't do anything different than a lot of us did at that exact same age we made risky choices sometimes we we, we went out with people maybe we shouldn't have we smoked pot we you know had sex and uh, you know unprotected sex we did a lot of different things when I first started looking at this case, I, I, I couldn't. I, I was thinking about you know the part that you, you heard where she said she met someone at a stoplight and she went out with him. My first thing was she had to have known this person. There's no way she would have met someone. And after talking to her friends, they said, "No, I saw her do that before. She would. She was bold. She was brave. She would. She would flag a guy down on the on the side of the road and say, "Give me your number," and then call him later. And she'd go out. It wasn't. It, so that part makes sense it's not unreasonable that for her that she would have done that but that's there's nothing so my answer to that is so we don't we don't um say a thing about the guys that are doing the same thing in march of 1991 nine months after lisa's murder her mother came to the police department the criminal investigations division with mr willie oliver and requested that the sheriff's department do a composite sketch of the man in the white truck, with the help of Mr. Oliver. The report notes, quote, being unable to locate Willie hindered the composite, only knowing he was on the streets in Bradenton. An interview was also done in the Behavioral Science Unit with Mr. Oliver to determine his status for investigative hypnosis. Their findings were that he would not be a suitable subject. Their report states, quote, our interview of Mr. Oliver found his thinking scattered and confused. He confabulated extensively. He expressed good moralistic ideas and created information. He was defensive and suspicious. It is our opinion that this person is emotionally disturbed and not likely to be a reliable witness. 
Now, when they say Mr. Oliver was, quote, defensive and suspicious, they mean of them, the people questioning him, the police. Not that they found him as a person defensive and suspicious related to this incident. Yet, obviously, with this crime, when you have a witness that comes forward and accurately describes the victim in her clothing, being the last person known to see her, you need to take a closer look at them and make sure they aren't the person who may have harmed your victim. So first, there is nothing in Mr. Oliver's initial statement that suggests that he didn't see Lisa Beckel. He perfectly described her clothing, saw her exiting her own vehicle, and there's no reason to believe that he would get all of that correct and then somehow not be at least as accurate with his descriptions of seeing a man pick her up in a pickup truck. I did my own research on Mr. Oliver. Court records out of Sarasota and Bradenton indicate that his living arrangements were transient in nature, and his record over the years includes evictions and convictions for trespassing in a park. There are indications that he has been unhoused at points. This would certainly explain why he was at Riverfront Park in Bradenton and for that length of time that he was able to observe Lisa, which seems to be a significant length of time. In his notes, the detective lists Sarasota, Florida police records from his check of Mr. Oliver. He notes a drug arrest the year prior in September, two months later in December, a disorderly conduct arrest, and in February 1990, a charge of loitering and prowling, that April, a domestic dispute, and then about three months before Lisa's death, there's a note that Mr. Oliver may have been a suspect in a motor vehicle theft, although nothing ever came of that. The next month, there was an arrest for battery. And then about two months later, on July 8th, about three weeks after Lisa's murder, he was involved in another domestic dispute. All of this to say that Mr. Oliver had some issues of his own with brushes with the law. But I want to note that I've done a bit of research on quite a few names listed in the Lisa Beckel case file, and there is no shortage of people with similar issues. Far too many domestic violence records were noted, for my taste, in fact. So you can certainly take those things into account as you assess each witness, but none of those things mean that Mr. Oliver didn't see what he saw that night. Here are the facts. He is known to hang out in public parks. He accurately described Lisa's clothing, and his story is supported by the story of Lisa's friend Susan, who said that Lisa told her she was headed to that exact park to meet with a man that she had run into at a stoplight whose name she thought Lisa said was Keith. When the detective spoke with Mr. Oliver's landlord, he learned that he had left that address about a month after the murder, and the landlord indicated at that time that Mr. Oliver and his female roommate actually got around town on bikes, and they did not have a vehicle. This point was the most important to me. No vehicle would mean that Mr. Oliver would have no way to transport Lisa to Emerson Point if he had been the one to do her harm. And police had fingerprinted Lisa's car, and they did not come up with any prints that suggested Mr. Oliver, or anyone else, had driven her vehicle. Mr. Oliver would be interviewed at least three times, and his story remained consistent. In the second interview when he was asked, he did add that he didn't notice Lisa carrying anything when she went to get into the pickup truck. That part stuck out to me because of the description of Lisa's purse which was never found. It was described by her mother as having hoop handles, 
which seems like Mr. Oliver may have remembered seeing her carrying if she was, since he observed her walk from her car to the bench, and then from that bench over to the truck, speak with the driver, and then walk around to the passenger side. That's quite a long time to observe someone and miss them carrying a purse. But we can't say for sure he didn't miss it because that second interview was months later. The second and most important observation that Mr. Oliver made were about pictures that he was shown. First, he was shown a photograph of a white truck that was owned by Brian's roommate. At the time, the theory that police had was that if Brian was the one who picked Lisa up that night from the park, because Lisa's mom said he had matched the description, if it was him, he would need a white truck to do that in. But Mr. Oliver told police that the truck in the photo appeared to have a newer paint job than the truck that he saw at Riverfront Park. Then he was shown a group of photos, one of which was Brian, Lisa's boyfriend. Mr. Oliver picked up two photos. One was Brian and the other was a white male with sandy blonde hair that was randomly chosen by police. Mr. Oliver looked at them and he said he didn't know where or even if he had ever seen these two subjects. They might have been familiar, but he said the driver of the white truck that night, his hair was not the same as Brian's hair. The hair on the man in the truck was lighter. Mr. Oliver called it bleachish, blonde-colored, or sandy-colored. So at this point, they had found Lisa's clothing, and they had found Lisa's car. But where was Lisa? Stay tuned. <laughs> 